Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, we got through a lot of stuff yesterday, and I always want to compliment you. That was some of the more difficult things to begin to process and to think through because it's, um, especially some of the things in this category, it's, it's just tough to wrap your minds around, but I really felt like you did the hard work of choosing to engage and doing your best to follow along with what's going on. Um, and so hopefully it just gave us a little bit of a glimpse into a worldview that might be different than some of us might be used to thinking, okay, or give us this, some more clarity, hopefully a, a better level of understanding, perhaps where some folks are coming from, right? And uh, I think I want to start this morning before we just jump back into the content of uh, just reminding ourselves, you know, what the point of all this is. Why are we even engaging in these discussions, okay? And why are we pursuing this kind of content and and trying to, you know, glean understanding of this whole area of worldview. Um, let me start with, an ex- with a story, um, something I didn't have in my testimony the other day. But when I was uh, <clears throat> going through high school, and then shortly after that I went off and did my DTS, and then came back and was helping out in my church youth group and such, I remember that there was a uh, just something that was kind of nagging me, something that was troubling me for a long time, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it as to what it was. And, um, and if I'm just going to describe maybe some of the culture of the youth group that I was a part of, because I was going to a great church, which had great messages from the Word. Um, the worship times were, were incredible. It was just, you know, there's a lot of good God stuff happening. This church was growing very quickly. Um, this church was, a lot of things are going right with this particular church. And, uh, you know, I was in a youth group, and the youth group, um, was a little bit bigger than maybe the group of this room. I think maybe there's 40 to 50 people in the youth group. Um, and so that being the case, you know, there was sometimes you didn't get to know everybody very well in the youth group. But as I was involved with youth events, you know, through the high school years and coming back and interacting with it a little bit, um, you know, once I was out of high school, just helping out, here's sort of the dynamic that I recognized. Uh, I think if you were to ask most of the kids or many of the kids in the youth group, you know, about their faith, about the relationship with God, many of them, maybe not all, but many of them would be able to give you the right answers, and I think they truly had a relationship with Jesus. They understood the gospel, they understood, you know, what it, what it means to, you know, come into faith and so on. But when it came to conversations, when it came to the culture of, of that group of people, it didn't seem a whole lot different than the culture of my non-Christian friends at my public high school. You know what I'm saying? the values didn't seem a whole lot different. Uh, With the exception of maybe we didn't swear, maybe our language was a little little bit better, and we didn't tell dirty jokes, at least when the youth leaders were around. Sometimes when the youth leaders are not present, you'd notice the the conversation changing tone a little bit amongst these these Christian kids. and uh, but I remember thinking, you know, it, just, it was kind of troubling me because I, I didn't feel like there was, a, you know, a real contrast, a little bit of contrast on peripheral things like maybe less swear words and so on. And uh, there was this one time I had a, an experience where um, I noticed some of the youth leaders coming out of a meeting, and they looked a little bit, a little bit somber. And this one particular guy, I hadn't seen him quite, you know, he's, all, he's such an upbeat person, and it looked like he'd really, he was really deflated. So I asked him what was going on, and he just shared with me uh, a story. I'll say it really quickly, but here's sort of the, here's what happened. There was a young man, late teens, um, didn't grow up in a Christian home. Someone led him to the Lord. He was a guy in the area, in the neighborhood. So brand new Christian, 
And he said, well, I need to be a part of a group of Christians now. And so he sort of took a scan of the area, and our church was in the area. So he came and found out there was a youth group of people his age that were meeting together. And so he got all excited. He came to the youth group. It was a part of it for about a month. And at the end of that month, he went to the youth leaders and said, I just want to share something with you. Um, just because I honor you, I love you guys, I respect you guys, um, but you're not going to be seeing me here anymore at this youth group. And I just want to let you know that I'm okay, um, and I really don't want you to be offended. But then the question, of course, comes up, why are you leaving? And this basically, in, a, in sort of a nutshell, this is how it was conveyed to me, it was a story. He said, well, I'm a, I'm a new Christian, and I'm really excited about walking with Jesus. And I'm trying to pull away from this, this life that I know isn't pleasing to God. Now, this is a baby Christian. And he said, and so I came to this church and this youth group with so much hope and enthusiasm and excitement. But yet as I've been here this month, I don't see a real distinctive difference between the mood and the culture of this group of Christians from my friends I'm trying to, you know, get some distance from. And he said, so I'm going to go and try to pursue a community of Christians which will encourage me to move forward in my faith instead of dragging me back to the ways of the world. And, uh, and this, of course, that would, be, that would be really heavy, wouldn't it? Especially when you're, if you're reaching out to a group of people. And, and, uh, and so we're talking about this. I'm like, well, man, I don't know if I could have articulated it that well, but I said, I agree. I've been feeling the same tension for a long time. I just know how to put it into words. So I began to think about that, dwell on that some more. And I felt like God at one point had given me sort of a, you know, a way to understand this, this tension I was feeling. And it basically was something like this. I realized, you know, I, just, I drew these words on here. Um, at this time, I was just thinking culture, but now I'll add to it the spirit of the age. Okay, I'll talk about that more in a minute. But the spirit of the age, which is sort of a, a cultural peer pressure to conform, but usually to the values that were set up by the enemy, values that were set up in one of these other two columns. That would be sort of the spirit of the age, the way the enemy is influencing any particular generation. But oftentimes it has a huge bearing on our culture. But at this time, I'm just thinking our culture. I felt like the Lord saying, what's going on? What you're feeling in the youth group and what this new Christian was sensing and, and coming to terms with is that when we as Christians, when we read the scriptures, we might open the Bible, we might have all these great intentions, but when we read the scriptures, we're reading it through the grid of our culture and what our culture has told us and how the culture has shaped our thinking. And the things that don't fit we don't even realize that we're disregarding. It's filtering God's truth because culture has that much effect and that much influence on our hearts and minds. And I remember there's that, I'm like, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, you know, I, if I were to sort of explain, you know, one thing that really, the one thing I think that shaped our culture the most, that youth group culture, it was MTV. Okay. At that time, that was maybe a much more, more stronger culture influence than it is now, but that was the coolest thing, music videos. So in a sense, the music industry, both through the medium, the artistic medium of the music, the lyrics, and the visual things being put to video, that really is what seemed to be having the most influence in our thoughts, our opinions, and our values. And I remember thinking, how, how are we going to make a difference in our world, in this nation, if this is shaping and filtering what we see from Scripture? Okay. Now, it wasn't that people didn't love Jesus, but in the areas of their mind, this was having more influence. Does that make sense? The mind was undiscipled. And not necessarily by the fault of anybody. It's just the cultural pressure is so strong. Remember that 70 hours versus an hour and a half. That is what created this grid. And so I was just like, God, what? What's going on? What needs to happen? I don't, you know, what is it? And I feel like the Lord say, instead of doing this, it needs to be the other way. 
the culture is put down, and we look at our culture through the grid of the Bible, and whatever does not fit God's word needs to be uprooted and thrown out and replaced with truth that's coming from here. And it's much easier to say that and illustrate it than actually do it, because to do it means being intentional and deliberate to study God's word with a submissive attitude which says, I will submit to what God has said through his revelation even if I don't like it. And even if I disagree with it in my own personal opinion, and especially if it goes against the spirit of the age. You guys, that is radical. Because that means we're going to look like freaks in the eyes of the world. Okay? Um, typically, cultures don't like it when people go against the flow of where that culture is trying to go. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's the here's way I tell that story. Really, the goal of what we're doing in comparing and contrasting these things, first of all, we want to lay foundations, primarily foundations in our own life. What does the Bible tell us about the basic questions of life? What are some of the basic foundations? And here's what I'm going to say. We're just introducing these things this week. We're not doing the full work of going there and developing these things. We're introducing these foundations. But in addition to that, we want to compare and contrast to these other worldviews which have shaped the cultures that we live in, these things that have influenced our mind, because we want to recognize what those things are. We want to stop reading the Bible like this. We want to start reading the Bible or continue more deliberately looking at our culture through this grid. Now, here's what I want to say in that. In that, there are many things, there are things in every culture which do line up with God's truth and are not contrary. There's valuable things in every culture. But I also want to say there are things in every culture which do not line up. And in those cases, those things need to be discarded or redeemed or somehow. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the goal this week. And so we're, we're trying to go deep and introduce a lot of these things, compare, contrast, because we want to recognize how, we be, how we've been influenced by these categories. Does it line up with this? And am I living consistently with what God's revelation has told us? And that's the point of this all. Okay. If we do that, I believe we'll be much in a much better position to influence our world in this generation. As I said, maybe we might be looked at as freaks sometimes, but here's something else that's happened throughout history. When Christians have done this, there might be a lot of resistance. There usually is. In certain places, even today, to the point of death and martyrdom. Okay? That might not be something that most of us have faced, but there are brothers and sisters in the world who are facing that right now because they're going against the flow. But we also know historically when Christians have done that, when they've taken a stand and say, I am not going to go in this direction. I'm going to stand for... God's truth, and I'm going to glorify God in how I live my life. That becomes attractive to the people who are seeking after truth. Okay? And they flock to it. Right? And we will have a position of authority to influence our culture because people will see the difference and they will say, I want that. Right? Especially if we're saturating this all in prayer and intercession because we know that God wants to capture the hearts and the souls of people. Okay? So that's why we're doing all this, this difficult um, you know, just, just going there. And I, again, I want to say I appreciate you guys because I really feel like you're some of the most difficult stuff. You're going there with me and you're trying to wrestle with it and you're taking it in, you're thinking it through. And that's awesome because I think by doing that, it, this is going to equip you. Okay. That's my prayer. It's going to equip us to be better and more effective at influencing our culture, our cultures and our, and our world and so on. Okay. Um, does that make sense? All right. So that's kind of, that's where, where we're trying to go with all of this. Maybe I should, I should have probably expressed a little bit more um, at the beginning. But um, we left off yesterday talking about 
just begin to introduce this whole concept coming to us from the Eastern worldview. And we talked about intuitionism, and we talked about uh, just, you know, the fact that, you know, where did everything come from, from this perspective? Well, based on sort of just trying to feel it out from our, our feelings, from our gut, we really don't know. The questions aren't really clearly answered. But there's a, you know, there's a sort of a comfort with that because, as we said yesterday, if truth, real truth, ultimate truth is beyond words, and if you could articulate it in words, you've got the wrong answer. Does that make sense? It's something that's less. And so there's this, this understanding, as we talked about, uh, you know, even the, you know, the, the baby, the master teacher. Okay, you meditate on things until you get a feeling. Um, there's, a, there's an Indian fellow named Vishal Mangalwadi. He's spoken here in this campus um, at least a couple times um, in different schools. He tells a story of, uh, he, he, so he grew up in India, became a Christian. He's kind of one of India's leading Christian philosophers right now. He tells a story of uh, when he just wanted to begin to explore for himself different worldviews and how they compare um, to God's word and so on. He wanted to visit this monastery coming from an Eastern perspective. And this monastery that he was going to, I believe it was in the Himalayas, uh, it was known for having this amazing invention, which uh, the, these, this group of people, this people group, had come up with, I believe it was centuries ago. And it was a rotating bookshelf. Yeah, they had these libraries of all of these, you know, all of their Eastern books, you know, all of their, uh, you know, books coming from this perspective. And uh, rather than going down the hallways of books to find the one you want, you could stand in one place, turn this handle, and the bookshelf would come toward you. Yeah, it was this rotating bookshelf. I'm not sure how it worked, but it was, I guess for the time, it was a pretty remarkable invention. Okay, so this place is known for that. And so you wanted to go up there, you know, and see this, you know, this, this marvel and to see what was happening in the... In the with this particular worldview. And the way he tells the story is he got closer and closer to where he was directed where this library was. He could hear the sound of the bookshelf as it was rotating. Click, 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 click. He could, he could hear that noise getting louder and louder. And he got to the point where he actually saw it. There it is. There's the bookshelf. There's the guy turning the crank for the bookshelf. And there were all the uh, priests studying, but not studying in the way that you and I might define studying. They're all sitting there around the man who's turning the crank, and they're meditating on the sound of the bookshelf turning. Follow this? They weren't reading the books from the bookshelf. They'd gone beyond trying to find truth by the words in the bookshelf to meditating on the sound of the bookshelf, a meaningless sound. And as they could meditate on that clicking noise, hour after hour after hour, they began to get insight. You hear what I'm saying? So that's, that's kind of, again, coming back to... Uh, the sense of maybe the intuitionism that can come from this. Um, that might seem like an extreme, but that's eventually, in a sense, the logical, reasonable conclusion of just trying to find truth that transcends human language, that transcends its reality. Right? And so we covered some of these other answers yesterday. I'll just put these on the board really quickly. I'm talking about the nature um, condition. You know, what is the nature of humanity? Well, the idea is that everything... Um, from this you know, sort of animistic, which is the core of Eastern religions, that everything is one. That everything that is one, we talked about this yesterday, this is that spiritual force, which is Brahman. Brahman is the only true ultimate reality. Okay. Everything else is illusion. So Brahman truly is all that exists. Which means the only thing that is real is the supernatural. Everything else is maya, that would be a Hindu term for it, um, basically describing an illusion. 
Now, this might seem um, like something that is, you know, distant from us or, you know, man, we, this might be, seem so foreign to some of you. Um, but for those of you from uh, U.S. and Canada, this might be something that other cultures have as well. Um, but for those of you guys from U.S. and Canada, might be taking a risk here. But I'd like you guys to, to sing a song with me if you could. Okay. You guys all know the song from your childhood, Row, Row, Row Your Boat? Okay. Let's sing that together now, shall we? Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Did you ever think about that last verse and the lie that it was telling you? Okay. Life is but a dream. Is it really a dream? Okay. Right? I'm saying maybe not as far away as you might think. Okay? Maybe not as far away as we could think. And so when it comes to what's the explanation of humanity. We mentioned this a little bit yesterday. Man is basically this Brahmin in a state of self-forgetfulness. It thinks it's, it exists as a he's and she's and as different individuals on the planet. Um, the way I heard one person put it is uh, basically man is Brahmin, that spiritual force wrapped in Maya. And that's when I used the illustration yesterday of the plastic water bottle is the illusion, the reality is the water inside. That water inside came from the ocean of Brahmin. And that really is a nation or the nature and condition of reality. Um, there's a story coming from uh, one of the Hindu scriptures. Um, because it's even difficult to understand these things. Because it's, it's so, uh, you know, it's hard to, to get your mind around this. Um, and so sometimes even in the scriptures, um, they'll, they'll have ways of sort of helping people get there. Helping people understand what this is all about. So there's a story told from the Hindu scriptures of a boy coming to uh, his father and he asks this question. He's kind of coming back to the basic question. He says, Father, what am I? Okay. What am I? And the father answers his question this way. He says, look out there, my son. What do you see? And the son looks outside. He says, I see a tree. This is very good. What do you see on that tree? Oh, Father, I see fruit. Very good. Go bring me the fruit. He brings the fruit. Break open the fruit, my son. He breaks open the fruit. What do you see? I see pulp. What do you see in the pulp? I see a seed. Break open the seed. What do you see inside that seed? I see nothing, my father. Very good. That's what you are. Are the essence of nothing is where this tree came from. That's where you came from, my son. You are nothing. And using a physical example to help him understand, oh, ultimate reality is starts in this, like we come from nothing. That's what we are. Um, now think about that. If out of that same nothing, this is what we came, again, we always want to be thinking the consequences of an idea. What will it lead to if people live this out consistently? Now many people don't live out the ideas that we hold to consistently. Okay, one of the things we come to, um, well, in both these worldviews, Eastern and secular worldviews, this idea that morality is relative. People say that all the time. We must praise God that most people do not live that out consistently. You hear what I'm saying? Most people do not live as if morality is relative. But they'll say it in theory. It sounds good in theory. It doesn't work in the way you live your daily life. Okay? You can't really live that way. Um, the people that do, we put them in prison because they end up committing crimes and atrocities. Um, 
even thinking about that, uh, you guys might remember, maybe you, you may have heard this in, you know, I don't know, different places, but you remember this, this famous incident that happened in Colorado, Columbine High School, the shooting, okay? These two boys went to the school and, you know, killed, you know, classmates and teachers and so on, and then killed themselves. It was a tragic thing, absolutely tragic. And I remember in the news, you know, surrounding that over those next couple days, a question was being asked among the journalists. And the question was this, how could something like this happen? How could something like this happen? And I found myself, maybe being a little bit crazy, but I found myself talking to the television because I wish these journalists could hear me. I was saying, how could it not happen? Because what those boys are taught in that school very likely was that truth and reality are relative. And what those kids did was consistent with that idea. And once they do that, we call them monsters. I heard a story, I haven't had this verified, but I, I heard stories about this. That In the following weeks, they had a, a place in at school where um, students could express their grief. It was a very good idea. The morning wall, one of the hallways, big, you know, put paper over it, and you could write poems, you could draw art, and it was, it was ways for the, for the kids of that school to express their grief over their fallen classmates and their teachers and so on. Great idea. Well, some of the students in that school were Christians, and the way to express their grief was to put psalms of mourning in scripture verses. And the administration came and said, you can't do that. Separation of church and state. We can't allow those expressions on this board. I remember hearing that and I thought, wow, we've learned nothing from this tragedy. We've learned nothing. I remember thinking, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. And after that, you begin to see it happen more often, different places around the country. And yet we're always shocked. We shouldn't be shocked. And this this might seem kind of heavy to say, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often considering what we, are, what we teach ourselves, what the spirit of the age tells us in our culture, that truth and morality is relative. Because if it is relative, who are we to judge someone who takes up a gun or a knife or strangles their neighbor? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, that's why these things are so important. And we as God's people, we must not give in to the spirit of the age, which tells us these things. So, how does this lead to the way you answer this question? If everything is, you know, just simply a, um, if Brahman is all that exists, if, if the physical world is illusion, all the stuff is illusion, how does it lead to morality? Well, some of the, uh, the beliefs in this, um, you know, maybe you got the, the good side and the dark side to this ultimate reality, which is Brahman. Morality ultimately becomes amoral. Okay? When you add the word A to something, what does that do to the word? negates it. Okay? So basically, in a sense, there is no ultimate morality. Basically, things in a sense are sort of neutral. Okay? Ultimately, morality is relative. So the goal then, what drives morality is to do whatever is necessary to gain good karma. Because one of the explanations, it's not really clear how it started, but the reason why we are stuck in these illusions, okay? think back to this, the reason why this happened is somehow in a past life, there were bad things that we did. We did bad things to get to bring on to ourselves bad karma. And that bad karma keeps us trapped in this cycle of transmigration, reincarnation, depending on what system you're talking about, okay, where you keep passing from one life to the next. Now, there's not a clear explanation as to how that began, but we do know that we're in this cycle. And so morality becomes, what does it take to burn off or to get rid of some of that karmic debt? Because if you get rid of it all, that is when you can be released from the cycle and be poured back into Brahman and be reabsorbed 
into it. And so here's, here's kind of the dilemma. Doing good deeds for people can give you good karma. Committing crimes can give you bad karma. That part we might understand. But other things that can give you bad karma are things such as interfering with someone else's karma. If you do that, you can bring bad karma upon yourself. Here's how this can work out. Okay. If someone is suffering, the explanation as to why someone's suffering from this perspective is what? Why is this person suffering in this life? Bad karma. Okay. And so what happens if you come, the reason why they're in that situation is because of bad karma. It's fate. It's destiny. This has to happen to them. And if they suffer enough here, they've got less karmic debt, they'll be in a better spot perhaps in the next life. Now, if you come and alleviate their suffering, you are now interfering with their karmic debt. They're just going to have to pay it later. So you've done them a disservice perhaps, and you've also brought bad karma upon yourself. There is a demotivation to help people who are suffering. Now, some people do help those who are suffering, but sometimes there's this dilemma. What's going on? What is happening to me? When Mother Teresa first moved to Calcutta to help the poorest of the poor and the dying and the destitute, the people that even the hospitals would not take, she received opposition from some of the religious leaders because she was interfering with the karma of those people who are suffering. Now, here's the thing. By her steadfast actions, she changed the hearts of a lot of people. And when she died, many people from those different you know, sects and those priests came to her funeral to celebrate her life. Okay? The beauty of what she was doing transcended the worldview that was trying to influence the culture. That's cool, isn't it? Okay? But that's interesting that when she first showed up, it wasn't the popular thing that she was doing with many people. It certainly was the people who were suffering, but it may not have been with some others. Okay? Think about... How damaging that can be just to the dignity of a human being. Um, and so, but the goal of this, where is this going? We're talking about destiny coming down here. Um, in uh, Buddhism, it might be called nirvana. In Hinduism, it might be called moksha. But the whole idea of getting off of the cycle of birth, rebirth, over and over and over again, okay, is to get rid of that karmic debt uh, through one way or another and to escape it, to get off this wheel of samsara and to be reabsorbed back into Brahman. Okay. Um, and that can be through good deeds, that can be through all sorts of things. Um, but you never know when your debt is paid. That's one thing. You're never really sure when your debt is paid. Now think about this. If someone tells you you owe a big debt and uh, you've got to do everything you can to pay off this debt, what would be a question that you might have? How much debt do I owe? We're not going to tell you. You just have to work to pay it off. Am I getting closer yet? You never know. You'll never know until it's actually paid off. That would be a pretty heavy burden to bear. You never know how close you are. Now, not everyone, of course, in the system, and some of you guys are going to go to countries that have been influenced by this way of thought, not everyone's going to think this through at this level. Okay? Many people live in a, uh, maybe especially with Hinduism, because this stuff I've just described to you is really abstract. It's hard to get your mind around they sort of live within the parameters of the illusion itself. And so there might not be a lot of devotion to Brahman, the impersonal um, Brahman, but they will give devotion to individual gods and goddesses. Now, ultimately, Hinduism teaches that those gods and goddesses are also part of the illusion, but they're much higher, and they're much closer to ultimate reality than we are. 
And so you might give your exclusive devotion to this god or this goddess, you know, or this spirit. And so it's much more, has a feel of just being polytheistic. Okay, and there might be multiple gods. Um, so you may have been in Hindu, Hindu homes where you might see, uh, you know, a picture of Ganesh, Shiva, and Jesus on the wall. Because they might just add Jesus to the mix as one of the many gods they can give their devotion to. Um, because they've got no problem taking in, um, but sometimes it's difficult to exclude all that stuff and say, no, there is only one true God who is personal. Okay, that might be the hard part. But to add Jesus to the mix is often not a problem. Uh, because he might be honored as a, an ascended master or something like that. Right? And so, um, yeah, we put the answers on the PowerPoint that would fill in these boxes. Now, this, this influence that used to be seen as an East and West thing, it really isn't anymore. Okay? Because of this perspective, you know, whether you're talking about the animistic perspectives, the Eastern perspectives, it pretty much is global. Okay? Uh, many different isms come forth from this. Um, I just want to pause real briefly to talk about uh, what I'm going to refer to as the spirit of the age. Um, there was a fellow, a professor from a college I went to some time ago. Um, his name is Dennis Fisher. And he just had a very brief explanation. And I like it because it's very concise and to the point. And he's talking about this, this thing I've been, this word I've been using a lot called the spirit of the age. And let's see if I can find this here. Here's what he says. Every age has its own thoughts, ideas, and values that influence the culture, the spirit of the age. It is a kind of growing consensus that morally lulls us to sleep, gradually causing us to accept society's latest values. The Apostle Paul called this corrupting um, atmosphere the course of this world. In describing the lives of believers at Ephesus before they encountered Christ, he said that they were dead in their trespasses and sins and walked according to the course of this world. This is the world's peer pressure, a satanically inspired system of values and ideas that cultivates a lifestyle that is independent of God. Then he goes on, he says, Jesus intends for us to live in the world, so worldly influence is nearly impossible to escape, but he's given, his, given us his word to so permeate our thinking that we don't have to become conformed to the world's values. Instead, God helps us to walk in his light, in the spirit, in love, in truth, and in Christ. And as we walk in God's power and spend time in his word, he gives us the strength to live according to the kingdom values and not the spirit of the age. The only antidote to resisting this influence goes back to something we talked about earlier in the week, abiding in the word, abiding in the truth. Not as an add-on to something we might do once in a while or read a little bit. Are we abiding in God's truth and depending on the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of the same? Um, some years ago, we had a, a gal on our staff. Her name is Susie Russell, and um, she'd just been pondering these things herself, just just sort of getting this understanding of how much she and her culture have been influenced by this. She's from Scotland. And um, I was teaching this once in a sort of a, a staff training thing, and she said, it's very interesting you're explaining all this because you basically described a picture I drew recently. And I said, I'd love to see it. And here's what, here's what she showed us. She called this the unholy trinity, the god of the age. And she said, the unholy trinity is entertainment, the nanny state, and me, the self, represented by the mirror. She said, for most people, life begins with themselves and ends with themselves. It's all about me. It's all about satisfying my own desires, my personal peace, my affluence, my comfort level. Okay? That's what life is centered around. 
But in that, we want, there's a lot of things that are outside of our control, and so we want someone else to really take care of us, to give us health, safety, leisure, to give us comfort. And instead of going to God for those things, we put something else in God's place, the state, the government, whatever entity might be there, we go to that institution as the one that's expected to take care of all of my needs. And the way we satisfy ourselves and all this kind of thing comes from just a, almost an idolizing of entertainment. Entertainment becomes a very high value. Very fascinating. Um, as we begin to talk about this, and she's saying here you got all the people bowing down and they're sacrificing freedom, beauty, and truth to the gods of entertainment, the state, and the self. And I thought, I was looking at this, I thought, this is kind of a good description of where we're at. Isn't it? As we begin to discuss this, um, you know, we had another fellow in the midst as a historian. You know, he, he, got, he had a degree in history. We began to talk about back in the Roman age, going back a couple thousand years. As things began to get uncomfortable and there began to be some troubles and pressures coming in on the Roman Empire, the government, the state, kept people pacified by what they called two things, bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. If we keep people fed, comfortable, and we keep them entertained, they'll be distracted from what's really going on. And it's easier to sort of corral them like sheep. As long as they're fed and they don't really have any spare time, we fill that spare time with entertainment. We sort of numb their senses. We numb their thinking. We numb all that kind of thing. Now, I don't know if there's necessarily that deliberate conspiracy now like there was then, but I want to say I feel like the enemy, in a sense, has put those same things in place. As long as I'm comfortable and entertained, it doesn't matter what's going on across the street, let alone across the world. That's their problem. Added to this, you know, I, I see, uh, if I were to add this in the mix, because everything does start, you know, with myself being my highest priority. I've recognized, um, at least in my time you know, in ministry, an increased comfort level with sin, even among Christians. An increased comfort level of sin. Things that my parents' generation would have even dreamed as being seen as acceptable are now just normal. And here's what I want to say. Not just my parents' generation of Christians the culture in general of my parents' generation, things that were seen as off-limits, as not good things by that generation, we are now oftentimes comfortable with those things even as Christians. Does that make sense? Because these influences are so profoundly effective. Um, I also feel like I'm seeing, uh, at least in the culture at large, an increased comfort level with occultic things, demonic things. Um, and sometimes I even feel like that's starting to peek into Christian culture a little bit. We must be on our guard. We must not be those who are going to go with the flow. We need to take a stand for God is truth. Not in a, in a, in a way that's like demeaning and, and this kind of pointing or finger pointing to people. But by the way we live our life, as Peter tells us, in gentleness. Are we going to do it in gentleness, but still stand firm? Do it with gentleness and respect. If we begin to, I think, recapture this, um, you know, along with revival, we need to move. Um, I think revival is really what we are desperately need in our generation. 
And on the heels of that revival needs to come a reformation where we really do get back to God's truth and apply it in every area of life, not just Sunday morning and my quiet time. It needs to permeate everything that we do. You hear what I'm saying? Okay. Um, so I might come back to the spirit of the age thing. I, just wanna, I, I realize I've been using this phrase a lot. I have not been explaining a whole lot what I mean by spirit of the age. So if you want to think, quick one-liner, it's sort of the enemy's peer pressure of our generation that's trying to impress upon us his values and to live by those things in that framework altogether. So uh, at this point, I want to shift gears. You know, I know it's kind of heavy, but I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure we have adequate time to talk about this next column over here, the secular worldview. Okay. Um, I should probably write that down, right? The secular worldview... This one will be easier to understand because the secular worldview is really what permeates and has tremendous influence in the nations of the West, but not just nations of the West anymore. This really does have a global, a global extent or extension because most, many, I shouldn't say most, many nations of the world have adopted what you might say a Western education system. And through that vehicle has come secular ideas into many cultures that traditionally were much more rooted in maybe Eastern perspectives. Does that make sense? And so this really is a global influence, even though you might typically associate it more with just being a Western thing. It's not just a Western thing. Um, I've gone to Asian nations, and the questions that I often receive are coming squarely out of a secular perspective on life. Um, the largest secular nation in the world, I just read a stat on this the other day, is a really big country in Asia. The highest percentage of people who claim that they're atheists. This is what it's referring to. I want to define this word secular the way I mean it this week, because sometimes people see it a little bit differently. Sometimes secular, um, you could take this to mean something that is void of God. Void of God. The way I want to use it when I talk about worldviews, a secular worldview is a worldview that does not take God into consideration. Please follow that. It's a worldview that does not take God into consideration. The reason why I phrase it that way is because that goes beyond just people who claim to be atheists. You can say you believe in God, but if the idea of God is not taken into consideration in your life, you're living on the basis of a secular worldview. Does that make sense? Even though if you're someone to ask you in a poll, do you believe in God, you'd say yes. But if the way you do everything else in life does not take God into that, then you're living on the basis of a secular worldview. That's what I mean by that. Okay? And so... You can have religious people, okay? and you know, if, you know, I think the polls in the United States, it's like 90% of people in the United States would claim to be religious. Not, they wouldn't claim to be atheists. But the way that many people live culturally is as if God does not exist. He's not taken into consideration. And so the secular worldview really is what permeates the culture, even though many people would say, no, I believe that God's out there. The actual people who claim to be atheists is a very small percentage. You hear what I'm saying? Okay. Um, now. This uh, Time magazine, this is one of their most famous covers from back in the 1960s. Is God dead? This is the question that they're entertaining in this particular issue. Now, they weren't saying that God used to exist and now he's died. What they meant was there was a growing cultural movement that was saying the idea of God is dying in our culture. He never did exist, but for the, you know who knows how long we thought that he did. We are waking up now as a civilization, as a society, the fact that God is not dead. Now think through, if that's the case, if God is, is not there, if he's not real, okay, 
As we've been saying this whole week, what are the consequences of ideas such as that? If God is dead, what will be the foundation of society? What is the foundation of right and wrong? If God is not there, society itself becomes its own foundation, or I become my own foundation, because nowhere else to look other than within. I can look to my heart's desires or to what I think, but I become, in a sense, the center of my world, or my nation, okay? or my people group, or my family, whatever it would be. But man's opinions become the basis of morality. But then you've got a problem, because this only works if you're by yourself on an island. Because as soon as the second person shows up, your opinions... And that person's opinions are being in conflict. And I said the other day, if you've got two people in conflict, who wins? Yeah, the one with the sword or the one who's the strongest. And that person will then impose his or her morality on someone else. Okay. And if God does not exist, what's wrong with that? We look at, you know, um, you know, a group of animals in the wilderness, and usually the strongest male rises at the top and sort of runs everything, and very few people look at that and say, well, that's evil. That's just the way it is. The biggest lion rules the whole thing, rules the pride. Okay. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 14 uh, tells us something, and uh, maybe we can read that. Can read Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. Read this for us. Psalm chapter 14, uh, verse 1. Who's got that for us? Just to have a different voice on the... Coming to the microphone here. Yep. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and there is no one who does good. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That word here in the original language denotes someone who's morally deficient. A lot of ideas, which you might say, okay, there's a lot of consequences from the idea that God does not exist. And we'll begin to talk about some of those toward the end of, uh, of our morning here. But I want to show you a brief uh, commercial that was played. Super Bowl is coming up pretty soon here, a really important sporting event um, in the United States. And uh, a few years ago, there was a commercial that was played during the midst of the game. I just want to share this with you and think through these ideas, what's being communicated, how it's being communicated, and so on. A lot is packed in that one little 30-second commercial. It's all about me. It's about being free. It just has such a good feeling of just release the power of mankind, doesn't it? Now, even some of the real quick parts in there, I think they're very deliberate. You know, um, It's more than words on a page. What might be suggested as to what that book is that was being turned at that point? It's not real clear, but could that be suggesting you know, scriptures of whatever it would be. Um, there's one phrase that says, some people may doubt you, let them, and it shows a little boy you're running away from something. What was he running away from? Anybody catch this? A church, stained glass windows. Um, and that very end phrase, which is interesting, we go one God further, atheism. Yeah, ironically, sort of endorsing the fact that there still is a God there. Sometimes, you know, we might think of a secular worldview as, well, they don't really believe in God. Well, no, it's just what is the God? How do they define it? And it's usually, as you said here, the power of logic, the power of knowledge, human intellect. And that really is the source of our faith. So that brings us down here to what is truth. From a secular perspective, we discover truth by rationalism. 
Man, by taking thought, can solve all of our problems. We don't need anyone outside of ourselves since there's no one out there. But if we think long enough and hard enough, we will sort it all out. And for a long time, especially in Western nations, there was incredible optimism in this, that if we just allow the scientists and the thinkers and the philosophers to investigate thoroughly and deeply, they will begin to sort out the problems of disease, the problems of war, the problems of you know, social ills, and so on. And what's begun to happen in recent decades is many people begin to realize this isn't working so much anymore. Things aren't getting better. It seems like they're getting worse on many levels. Right? But we still want to unpack this worldview for what it is because it does have such tremendous influence in our society okay? um, and globally by default. Here's some different examples of worldviews that you could say stem from this basic idea that you know, God is irrelevant. Um, remember we said, talk about isms. Remember when we add ism, we're talking about philosophical stuff, worldview. When you add ism to a word, what are you doing to the word? Making it the more, most important, okay? Uh, maybe you're saying it's the absolute thing, but it's the most important thing. So if you've got a worldview which, call, which, which is called naturalism, what is the most important? What is absolute here? Nature, okay? Nature is absolute, right? Similarly, materialism... What is being absolutized is matter, physical stuff. You can also add the ISM onto certain people's teachings or beliefs. So you might have people who say they believe in Darwinism. That means you're absolutizing, making the most important the teachings of a man named Darwin. And that's a description of a whole worldview which comes forth from his, from his writings and the things that he expressed. Here's another one that might seem... Uh, tough to even follow. Nihilism comes from a word nihilo, which means nothing. So it's being absolutized with nihilism. Nothingness. Now, without getting, maybe we're going to get ahead of ourselves a little bit, but there was a whole movement of people, philosophically minded people, called nihilists. And what they're basically saying is, if God truly does not exist, they were being honest. They said there is no basis for hope, meaning, or purpose for human life. That being the case, there's really nothing there. Let's just be honest. And make that absolute, make that, let's just focus on the fact that this is the bottom of reality, nothingness. Now, does that nothingness sound similar to a different worldview? Isn't that interesting? They might seem so different, but at the core, both of them logically kind of take you the sense that the ultimate reality really is there's nothing there. It's very empty. Uh, because nihilism is so difficult to live out, if you're going to live out consistently a logical consequence in your actions of the idea that there is nothing out there, ultimately, no meaning for, you know, no meaning, no purpose, no hope, no purpose. Logical consequence, that would be suicide, perhaps. Why keep living if there's no point? That nihilism is such a, a difficult place, even though it might be an honest place to be, that other people emerge and said, well, no, let's, let's, in a sense, create our own meaning. Let's find something, let's choose to believe in something that gives us hope and fills the void. Not necessarily because we think it's true, but because nihilism is so empty and hopeless. This group of people can be known as existentialists, people who, in a sense, validate their own existence by choosing to believe in something, choosing to embrace something, choosing to experience something. Now, you know, many of you guys might, you know, from one way or another, remember a little bit about the hippie movement of, you know, the 1960s, maybe early 70s. The whole idea of drug-taking. Okay, which really became in our culture, you know, taking hallucinogenic drugs. At that time, for many of those people, 
taking those drugs was a pathway to authenticate yourself, to find meaning by having a drug trip, trying to find meaning beyond words, borrowing some things from Eastern thought, and trying to find meaning in an experience by hallucinating. Okay? Today, it's pretty much like more so just a bad habit. But at that time, it was actually a philosophy. It was a pathway to find meaning and hope and purpose. Other people found it in music. Other people from the West found it by, well, let's go take a look at maybe what some Eastern worldviews have to say. Other people went to the occult. And you've got the rise of, you know, the, the satanic church in America and so on. People are going to other systems to try to fill the void. Now, in this, some people of that movement also embraced or went towards Christianity. They began to come to church. And they began to fellowship with Christians. But the motivation to become a Christian or to go to church was not because they believed that it was true, absolutely true. They are hoping that they would find an experience in the Christian community that would fill this void. It was an existential form of Christianity. Does that make sense? You know, there are people coming into it for some of the wrong motivations. Now, some of those folks came to actually come to know Jesus. And it was amazing. Other people would try it. Oh, that worked. It was good. But if you really don't know Jesus, the Christian experience doesn't really, you mean there's not much there. You don't actually know him. Well, that was good. Let me go try something else now. And they may have been labeled backsliders. They may never have been part of the family to begin with. We can never judge that. But here's the point. Almost anything can fill the void. Some people choose to put their hope in UFOs. Maybe aliens will save us one day. Is that true? I don't know, but I'm going to choose to believe it because it gives me hope. And so there's a sort of this, this idea that it doesn't matter if something is ultimately true. If it gives me hope and meaning, it's valid. And you hear phrases like, well, that may be true for you, but not true for me. What they mean by that, it's true for you if it works for you and gives you something to center your life from. That's great. I'm going to choose something completely different, and we'll just all be happy together. But the idea of truth as being important becomes very minimized when you're trying to discover um, something that gives you ultimate meaning. Um, other people could you know, take science, absolutize science, and we have what you might call scientism. I'm not saying everyone who's a scientist, well, that's just a label for people who engage in that, is, is, is uh, absolutizing science. But scientism, as a philosophy, means science really is the ultimate. It's the absolute thing. Um, philosophies such as secular humanism, where you're absolutizing humanity and saying that God's not in the picture. So there is no God, and humanity is a measure of all things. We are the ultimate. Okay. It breaks down in political systems, um, the basis of Marxism, communism, uh, most versions of socialism are also coming from this idea that there is no God at the foundation. Um, fascism, national socialism, some of those things you might remember from history, were firmly rooted in this perspective. And some Eastern perspectives as well. Confucianism is non-theistic, which means God's not in the picture. Um, and traditional Buddhism as well, God is not really a relevant factor, the idea of God. It's much more a system of some other things. And so a secular worldview, they're both Western and Eastern. Okay? It's not just located a certain place geographically. So with that in mind, it was just coming down to this beginning to think through what are the answers to these questions. The question of origin. Let's talk about that briefly. I don't need to spend too much time on this because I think you probably all know the answer because you would have heard these answers in school. What is the answer to the question of the origin of the universe? Big Bang. Okay. We'll just uh, abbreviate this since you know what this means. BB. Okay. That is the answer to the question of the origin of the stuff. Okay? But in the midst of all the stuff, there was also biological life. 
human life. Okay? What's the explanation for that? Where did human life come from? Evolution. It'll be, we'll be more specific. We'll say macroevolution. Um, and I'll explain the difference to that maybe more in a minute. Macro. And, of course, macroevolution is the idea that from just the material stuff, somehow organic things came into being and begin to self-replicate and begin to get more and more complex and complicated from a you know, small cell. And eventually it develops into you know, animals and plants and human beings and such. Okay? And then it all started. But eventually it came out of the stuff created by the Big Bang. Right? Um, now, here's what's interesting about this. Macroevolution, Big Bang... They don't really, they're not really answers to the question of origin. Sometimes we overlook this. They're explanation of the process of how things developed after the origin happened. Does that make sense? They don't explain the Big Bang does not explain what caused the Big Bang. The Big Bang theory explains how this stuff grew and developed once it happened. It does not tell us what started the bang to begin with. Same thing with the theory of macroevolution. It doesn't tell us how you go from non-life and stuff to living organisms that self-replicate. It's simply an explanation of the process of what they think happened once that got rolling. So it doesn't really explain how life began. It tells how life is continuing on. So interestingly, the real answer is we don't know. We ultimately don't know what caused the Big Bang, the universe to exist from a secular perspective. We ultimately don't know how biological life began to develop. We just know that we think it's developing this way and so on. Um, now, sometimes the answer is not given quite this directly. It might be a little bit given in a more sophisticated form. Over here I've got under this, you know, what, when the question comes up, well, what started the Big Bang? The answer really is, we don't know. Well, could it be God? Could it be God that did it that way? What's the answer from a secular worldview? No. Well, then what is the cause? We don't know, but if we ever do discover it, we know that will be the result of something that's natural, not supernatural. We know that. So more of a sophisticated answer is the universe, and even biological life, it's a result of a yet undiscovered natural cause, natural causation. What the saying is, we don't know what caused it, we haven't discovered it yet, but when we do, we know it will be a natural cause. Why? Because God doesn't exist. Hey, try to follow this. The idea of God is ruled out before the question is even asked. And that's why there's confidence. If we ever do discover how biological life began, or how the universe began, we know it will not be pointing to some sort of deity, some sort of God. Why? God doesn't exist. This isn't a whole lot different than if I uh, did something like this. Um, for our purposes in this class, and this is maybe a little bit simplistic, but I think it, it, it kind of drives the point home, gives us an understanding of why this is a significant, um, a significantly weak answer. We're going to decide as a class that there is no three. Understand? The number three does not exist in reality. There is no such thing as three. Okay. We got that? All right. Now we have to do problems. Got one marker here. I'm going to add two markers to it. How many markers do I have? We don't know. Someone might say three. No, it's not three. Why? 
Three doesn't exist. We decided before we asked the question that there is no such thing as three. Well, it looks like it's three. Yeah, but it may look like that. It can't be. Because we've ruled that possibility out before we look at the evidence, before we ask the question. So what's the answer? I don't know. But when we find out what the answer is to this problem, we know it will not be three because three does not exist. I'll just change it up a little bit. There is no God. How did the universe come to be? We don't know. Let's look at the evidence, man. Everything points in the direction of an intelligent designer. Yeah, it looks that way, but if we say it's an intelligent designer that did this stuff, that might imply a deity, and that can't be. Why? Because God does not exist. We ruled him out before we asked the question. It's not a whole lot different, is it? Here's something we need to understand. This secular perspective, although it often is given as if it's the smart intellectual option and this one's stupid, it is beginning in a blind leap of faith in the idea that there's no God. You can't prove that God does not exist. Now, we need to be honest, we can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he does through natural means. I think there's good evidence, but we can't prove it. Does that make sense? Okay. That might be hard to hear, but we can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt. But you certainly can't prove he doesn't exist when, by definition, he's beyond the natural stuff. You can't put him in a test tube and figure out if he's there. But if I rule that idea out, the fundamental idea in this is an assumption without evidence. We are just going to choose that God does not exist because we don't like that idea. You start going through life, try to find a basis for morality, ethics, where are we going? You get into a lot of jams because you're not open to a possible answer. To be really honest and objective and even using a reason trying to figure out what's going on, we should be open to all possibilities. And what if the evidence points towards some sort of intelligent, all-powerful creator? Why not follow the evidence where it leads? Does that make sense? Here's why I'm going through all this. I want us to understand that although many things in this perspective might be very intellectual, at the core of it, at the foundation, is an assumption that cannot be proven. It's believed, and they try to build a whole worldview based on that concept, that there is no God. Um, and so, with, uh, of course, with evolution, um, or this perspective, this is a famous statement by a guy named Carl Sagan. He says, the cosmos, which means the stuff, the physical stuff in the universe, is all there is, ever was, or ever will be. He's saying there is no supernatural. Why? Well, there just isn't. We know there's not, because that would imply maybe a realm in which deities live, or God lives in some, in some way, shape, or form. Okay? This is all there is. That's all there was before, that's all there is now, and that's the only thing that will be in the future, just the physical stuff. Nature and matter is all there is. And we are simply a part of that. We're an extension of that. By the way, kind of interesting, they're saying that everything is just, everything is one in a sense. Everything is just the material stuff. Not a whole different from the Eastern worldview, which says everything is just spiritual stuff, but everything is united, everything is one. Even similarity is somewhat in that, in that way of looking at things. Um, and so with this idea coming in to be, what is the nature of the universe? Let's go on to this next, uh, this next category here. What is the nature, what is the condition of reality? We've already said, secularism's view says that all there is is nature. Beyond that, there's nothing. It maybe even shouldn't be a question mark. It should just be there's nothing there. It's the material world is all that exists. Okay? There is no supernatural. So what is the nature and the condition of mankind, the human race? Who are we? What are we at our essence? Ultimately, mankind is nothing more than chemicals organized by DNA. 
That's really all we are. Now, questions that come, where did information come from in DNA to organize those chemicals? That's a dilemma. But ultimately, this is all we are. We could be nothing more than this. A teacher used to be on this campus, um, helped start the School of Humanities, Rick Thompson. Um, he used to just say, you know, another way of saying this, maybe a little bit facetiously, but, you know, mankind is really just a sack of guts with bones and hair. That's really all we are. We're just stuff. There's nothing more to that. Now, if that's all we are, you know what else? That's all a rat is. That's all a cockroach is. That's all a centipede is. And you guys ever seen a centipede, those big ones we have here in Hawaii? Okay. They're unnerving, aren't they? Okay. I don't think it'll be a mistake to use the word vile when we're talking about a centipede. Okay. Now, have any of you had one of these centipedes in your room? Some of you have, some of you haven't. Okay. Have any of you ever had the privilege of killing one of these centipedes? Who has had the honor of killing a centipede? Maybe I shouldn't say honor, but I'll say that. Okay, about, about a handful of you guys, right? How about a cockroach? Have you guys killed a cockroach? All right. Now, here's what I ask. When you killed that cockroach or that centipede, did you have guilt in your heart? No. Okay. As I see your reactions, I get the sense that some of you actually felt joy and exhilaration when you killed the cockroach. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Or if you killed the centipede, maybe you felt exhilarated by doing that because you killed this vile thing which was invading your space. Okay. Here's the thing, you guys. That centipede, that cockroach that you killed, is just chemicals organized by DNA and such. Essentially no different from you and I, if that's all we are. What this means is... Some people say, well, this, this elevates the level of the animal kingdom so that we treat it with more respect. Yeah, that might be a way of looking at it, but you know what else it does? It brings human beings down to the level of the animals and to the level of vermin and pests. Now, if you think consistently, if this is truly how you believe to your core what a human being is, just like when a cockroach is in your space, it's now a nuisance, it's a pest, you kill it, Right? Because it's a nuisance. It's a problem. What if a group of people get classified the same way? They're now a nuisance. Either because of their racial background or because of what they think. And their ideas are problematic. I'm not saying this theoretically because there have been some instances in history where people have been declared, well, they're pests, and when the machine got put in place to eliminate those people, it was seen as no different than eliminating a cockroach or a rat. Now, we look at folks like that and say they're crazy. Could be. I think it's more likely they're living consistently with what the secular world would be told them about the basis of humanity. Because if you're going to be consistent with that idea, the consequence, the logical consequence of the idea that mankind is nothing more than this, is you can treat mankind like animals or like the cockroach. It might seem far out there, but it's not because this has happened. More people have been murdered in my grandfather's lifetime on the basis of this idea of humanity than all people in all wars since the time of Jesus put together in one lifetime. Coming from the foundation that, yeah, this is all mankind is. There's nothing 
outside of us, which gives us value. The ideal or made in the image of God does not fit this category at all. Hear what I'm saying? Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, some years ago, um, there was a, a controversial case in the United States about uh, sort of like the right to live or the right to die. Um, the scenario was there was a, a married couple. I believe the wife was in a car accident, and she had severe head trauma, and she was in a coma. She was unconscious. Um, the parents were holding out hope that she would somehow snap out of it at some point, so they were paying um, you know, whatever the system was to keep her alive, okay, to keep feeding her. Her body was functioning, but her brain was not responding, but she was alive. So they had feeding tubes and, you know, water tubes in there to keep her hydrated and to keep her fed. Um, and the debate, a battle happened, a court battle between the parents and the husband. The husband wanted to pull the, feet, the food and water. The parents wanted to keep it going because they wanted to keep her alive. And a huge controversy and discussion, you know, across the country as people were talking about this on both sides. Um, I remember reading a, uh, an article in a, news, in a newspaper, USA Today, I believe it was. And they're discussing this idea. You know, you know, should we let her die? Should we not? And the question on this whole spread, and they had a whole bunch of different people giving their opinions and the experts weighing in on this. The question was this. What is a person? And they're right. This is a good question to start out with. What is a person? Because if she's a person, we can't let her die because that would be immoral. Does that make sense? If she's not a person, it's okay to, to pull the food and water and let her die. Um, and some people would say even hasten the person's death. Right? And so they have all these experts chiming in on this. But the first question is, what is a person? And this one professor gave a definition of what is a person. And what, astonishes, what, what astonished me when I read this article was none of these other experts, whether they're philosophers or biologists or you know, all the people involved in this, questioned this definition. Excuse me. Okay? Here's what the definition was. And from here, the debate went on. A person is someone who can make choices, communicate those choices, and practice intelligence. And based on that definition of a person, they begin to discuss the merits of whether or not to let this lady die. Well, by this definition, this girl wasn't a person, so guess what the inclusion of everyone on this panel was? Yeah, just pull a plug. Why not? She's not a person because she can't make choices. She can't communicate those choices. She's not practicing any intelligence, so she's not a person. So she's not protected by laws which protect persons. Now, remember we said ideas have consequences. We can thank our God that this is not the operating in reality definition that people have. If they did, if the whole society truly believes this is what makes a person, give me some feedback. I'll hand the microphone. What are some consequences of that idea? We'll do this quickly before we go to a break. Babies aren't human. Why would a baby not be a person? Not making choices, can't talk, can't communicate, and you can't see necessarily a whole lot of sign of intelligence. Yeah. Anyone else? Go ahead and pass that around. Yep. Uh, some people with like <laughs> special needs or disabilities. Yes. People with special needs, people who have, you know, they may uh, be mentally handicapped in one way or another. They might not qualify by this definition. Okay? That's scary, isn't it? Okay. How many of you have family members with special needs? Okay. This might hit home closer to you guys because you know for a fact 
that they're persons, don't you? With incredible value and worth. This takes away the dignity, worth, and value of someone who's got special needs when it comes to uh, their mental faculties. Yeah. Someone else. Go ahead, wherever the. I don't, who, raise your hands again so we know where to take the microphone. All right. Okay. Um, someone in a coma. Okay. Someone in a coma, like this gal. Yeah. Someone who's in a coma would not fit this definition. Robots can make choices. <laughs> robots can make choices, right? So maybe robots would be considered persons, while someone in a coma would not. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. By the way, if you guys pay attention to some of the sci-fi movies that are coming out recently, that's being suggested, that kind of stuff. Okay. Yep. Someone who's sleeping. Okay. Right on. Someone who's sleeping does not fit this definition of a person. Does that mean it's okay to eliminate them while they're asleep, but not when they're awake? You see how absurd this can get. What does this tell us? There's a problem with this definition of personhood, isn't there? Yeah, go ahead. Um, even older people who like don't can't fully function like their brains and okay, all right, dementia and dementia. Like um, by this definition, you guys, and this is where it, it strikes home to me. My mom does not fit this definition of person because she's one of those. Yeah. She has dementia. She got Alzheimer's, and and she can barely recognize people now. Okay. All she can do is when people come to the room, there's, she smiles and she recognizes a face, and it's hard for us as a family. I can tell you the love we have for is still there, and she's still a person even though something is wrong. But by this definition, she would not be. She would not be a person. Yeah, someone else. Um, Well, it says intelligence, and so in this case, you kind of have to define, like, what is intelligence? And then I think we have the problem, again, that no man is an island, and we have different opinions on what intelligence looks like. So if we have issues like we've had in these past 100 years of so many... Uh, like racial wars and stuff like that. It's like one race or one group of people decides that another one is not as intelligent or doesn't like communicate that in that way. And so we're like, we can kill them or not. Like, Hey, very good. Who defines what intelligence is? Basis of IQ? Give you an IQ test. And if you get above a certain mark, you're a person. You hear them say, here's the problems with this. Or what if it means... Because even in like the political debates, I hear people banter back and forth when it comes to political discussions. Oh, if they believe this, they're stupid. You must, if you have this perspective on politics, you're not intelligent. And it goes back and forth. Well, think about how scary that is. If that particular group gets an intelligence is defined by having the right political views, that's not absurd to think about that. Because if you believe this, you must be a moron. Who determines the definition of intelligence? That's a very important question to ask. Yeah, go ahead. Animals. Okay. <laughs> Maybe animals fit this. Maybe they don't. Yeah. Right. One more. Did you have one up here, Oliver? Did you have something? Oh, the elderly. Okay, that was one you're going to bring up. All right, one more. Back over here. Okay. Uh, certainly the unborn. Yep. Um, the unborn and even into after they're born, up to a certain point, until you can learn to talk and practice intelligence. Now, that might seem crazy. There are some people, respected academics and teachers, who've suggested that we allow the mother or the parents to abort not just before birth, but up until a certain age, three, four, maybe even later. Okay. 
That's being suggested. And ironically, there's not a whole lot of outcry about it. There is some. But you guys, if you're going to be consistent with this idea, why not? Where does it stop? Who determines why is all of a sudden being born one day and being unborn the day prior? What's the difference? Because we're like, yeah, okay, if, if they're not person before they're born, why not extend that a little bit later? Because they're really no different biologically, and they don't know how to think yet. They don't know how to practice intelligence. They just, they just cry and poop and sleep. That's all they do. Right? When you hear ideas being suggested, when you read an idea, when you hear it in a movie, in a song, think through the implications of the idea always. We must be discerning and process what we're hearing and not allow those ideas to shape how we read the word. Hear an idea I'm like, well, how does that line up to the Word of God? And you can't do that if you're not abiding in the Word. Okay? That's an essential first step for that to become a discipline and an essential part of our life. Are we students of the Word? Even when we find it boring, are we still going there and trudging through it and doing the work of letting it come in and fill our soul? I heard Annie Bird say it this morning with the training. He said, remember he said, there's power in saying the Bible says. Right on. Okay? There's something that, that, like, something like that unlocks something because you're appealing to the authority of something. You're appealing to the authority of the Word of God. The Bible says. is an important phrase to say when you're talking to somebody about these things. All right. We need to have the break, so I'll turn it over to the staff. And, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tom. This is so good, isn't it? Yeah. It's awesome. I find it so interesting how we're able to break it up, but sometimes... It's not like this clear cut. I was just thinking about um, Ashley and I had an encounter with a guy on Tuesday morning. We went down to get coffee, and this guy, like straight off, like he could tell we were YWAMers, of course. And he asked us, "Are you YWAMers?" And we're like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Oh, I don't believe any of that stuff. I'm not religious." And we're like, "Okay, <laughs> like great. I just want my coffee, you know, kind of thing." But he like continues on, and he's like, "I actually think the Bible's phony. I think it's fake." And then he's like, "But I believe in karma." And then he's like, so he's saying, like, there's no, the Bible's fake, it's not real, but I believe in karma. But then he goes on to then talk about how he honors his wife and he makes his boys honor his wife. And so it was like this, like, none of that actually lined up with any of these. Like, that was like a big mix of things. So it's so interesting how it's thrown at us, but it can seem like, oh, well, that guy just believes what he wants. But that was like a whole mess of stuff. And it's like, well, where did you get that? Okay, so sometimes it's not so clean cut. It's important to remember with like the people you encounter, it's not going to like, they're not actually going to follow most of their beliefs all the way through. So I just thought that was an interesting example of like this guy who's just like all over the place and stuff. But yeah. All right. Let's take 15 minutes for a break and then we'll come back. Yeah. We need to just kind of keep going. I want to continue to unpack this worldview a little bit because we need to take a really um, thinking about the ideas and where these things go. I think it's really important that we understand that because this worldview is having tremendous influence globally. Okay, many of the nations that we come from, this is uh, this really is becoming increasingly uh, the standpoint, maybe becoming you know foundational to how how many people think, right, in many societies. And so, um, it's important for us to recognize the spirit of the age and the cultures in which we live and and where these things can go. And so, let's just keep going with this um, this understanding of morality, right? If if the condition of everything is just the natural stuff, okay, if mankind is nothing more than DNA and chemicals and so on, what is the basis of morality, of right and wrong? Okay, so the question is this, how should we live? Right? 
And really, the only thing you can come up with from that foundation is that morality is relative to the individual or it's relative to something else. Um, now, some people might say it's relative to the individual. As I said before the break, that only works if that individual is by herself on an island. If you're by yourself on an island, yeah, you can do anything you want, make your own morality. As soon as a second person shows up, your relative morality is going to be in conflict with the other person's relative morality, and you're going to have a clash if there's differences of opinion. And so because of that just very practical reality, it usually shifts to, well, yeah, it's not ultimately just the individual. It's more like relative to our culture, okay, and to our society, right? But some people say well, it's relative to the individual, okay, or it's relative to culture, but the reason why there's hope that this will work, how was it that relative morality, if it's, whether it's relative to the individual or relative to society, how was it that this can even work? Well, there's this other belief, which basically says this, that mankind is basically good. Mankind is basically good. You might want to put that under here under condition. I should have probably put that in the slide. Um, mankind is good in his heart of hearts. And if that's the case, then we can trust people's relative morality to be the right thing, to be the good thing. Now pause and think about this, though. What is the definition of what is good and what is evil if there is no God? How do you define that? Is it whatever works for me? Whatever works for society? Is it something outside myself? It becomes very difficult to even define what is good. To say that man is basically good is basically a meaningless term. It's a meaningless thing because there's no way to identify what that is. Um, now, just going back in history a little ways, it might seem like a long time ago. It really was, you know, um, many of you, your grandparents and so on may have been around when these things are happening. But think back, you know, World War II, middle of the 20th century. Okay? World War II comes to an end. And the perpetrators of the Holocaust, um, you know, some of these Nazi generals and so on, are being brought to war crimes trials. And they're having these trials, and the prosecutors are bringing up the list of what they've done, you know, and here's how they or or orchestrated Auschwitz and so on. And this dilemma came up, because when these men were accused of their crimes, how do you plead? What's your plea against slaughtering all these people? I'm innocent. Well, did you do these things? Did you kill these people? Yes, but I'm innocent. How can you say you're innocent if you admit that you killed these people? Well, it was legal at the time. Because they're being consistent, morality is relative to culture, and in that culture, it was okay. Did you hear what I'm saying? And so they were actually being very reasonable. If it was okay, how dare you accuse me of a crime if it was legal to do such and such at that time? In, in these certain nations. And here's what's interesting. The prosecutors coming from places like United States, Canada, you know, um, England, and so on, um, maybe France, this worldview was already being permeated in those cultures. It's like, uh, yeah, what do we appeal to? Where do we go? Why is a British or an American morality better than what was going on in this country? Here's a dilemma. How do you judge which one's right? Because it's their relative morality against ours, and who are we to judge the other one? Okay? In our generation, we would say it's intolerant to do something like that. 
Now, that might seem extreme, but I've talked to people who are, in theory, trying to be consistent with this, and they'll say, say things, I've heard this kind of a phrase. Well, you know, yeah, I don't like the fact that those hijackers in 9-11 flew planes in those buildings and killed those people. But who are we really to judge because they're just living out consistently with what the religion taught them, and we're not in a place to say that that was wrong. And if there is no God to say what is right and wrong, that's correct. That's reasonable, isn't it? Think about this, you guys. If there is no God, then there is no moral law giver. If there is no moral law giver, then there is no moral law. If there is no moral law, there is no basis to distinguish between right and wrong. It all goes back to who sets the rules. Me? Okay. Mother Teresa? Saddam Hussein? Who sets the rules? It's just up to the individual. And if God's not in a the picture, there's nowhere to go. You've got to pick somebody, and it usually is the person or the group or the institution that has the most power. You see how this can be very problematic. And so morals and values become very hard to define. Typically what happens, if it's relative to culture, culture is made up of individuals, what this usually means in our culture, many things are decided on the basis of popular opinion. And if you watch media, they're constantly doing polls. What are people's opinions on this topic? And so the unspoken idea is, well, if 55% think this, then that's how we should shape our laws. If a majority of us think this, then let's just go with their opinion. Okay? That should be very scary for anybody who's in a minority group. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, I just think about you know some of uh, – I, I love United States of America. We've got some of our – Dark things in our past. I think about, um, you think about the horrible institution of slavery, you know, or you can think about, you know, certain racial things that have happened in the past. Well, if a majority of the people thought that was okay, did that make that okay? Of course not. And that's what led to some of the reforms and changes of people saying it doesn't matter what we think, that's wrong because God says all people are made in the image of himself. And therefore, we have no right to take this person on the basis of their skin color and say that they are less than me. But the only reason we could say that is because God had said it. Because if we went with a majority opinion, majority opinion would have kept certain groups of people in these confines. I want us to feel the weight of this. Because if there is not a voice to say, no, that is wrong, to go against the flow things will increasingly move in this direction. Once you reject God, it's only a matter of time until people begin to live consistently with the consequences of those ideas. Now here is why we are in a very weird time, almost historically, because especially those of you coming from Western countries, you're coming from countries that a long time ago had a big influence from this category, the Christian worldview. Okay? Now, by and large, this has been rejected and most people are, are pushing and teaching the secular worldview. But we're in this weird time where we are still reaping the benefits of our grandparents' generation who embrace this. The, the good consequences, you, may, you might even say, the profits of those investments are still paying dues. But if we don't put any more investment here, it will run out, and eventually this will take over. Does that make sense? 
we are still living with the privilege and the blessing of the residue of a Christian memory from the past. Eventually, that will run out. Unless something sets it back and brings us back to truth. And I believe the only answer is a massive revival. And that's why the intercessions for revival and the preparation for the discipleship, the reformation that needs to come after that, you guys, is so essential. And one of the great things about our generation is this generation of believers, your generation of believers, are catching a hunger for revival. Don't give up on it. Keep praying into it. Keep preparing for it, expecting it to come. But if that doesn't happen, we are on a really bad path. And not just one nation against many nations, we are going in a really bad direction. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, God is bigger than that. We need to put faith in it, but we need to pray desperately for restoration of God's truth in the hearts and minds of people. All this comes down to the question of destiny. Skip down here. The question of destiny. Where is everything going? And from a uh, secular worldview, the optimist, there's an optimistic answer and a pessimistic answer. Optimistic answer means we're expecting things to be good. The optimistic answer is eventually we're going to go towards some form of kingdom of man where we will set up some sort of man-made utopia. Where man, by our intellect, by our scientific reasoning, we'll finally purge ourselves of religious ideas and we'll understand that it's up to us to save ourselves and we'll set up this kingdom of man and make a man-made paradise. Okay? This was tried once a long time ago in the scriptures. It didn't work out so well. And God had to come down and, and intervene with it, Tower of Babel. But there's this optimistic belief that, yeah, we will, by our own intellectual moral bootstraps, pull ourselves up and solve our problems. And eventually we'll work towards paradise on earth. And what stands in the way are people who keep trying to drag us back to these old superstitions and old ways of thinking. People who are clinging to some sort of belief in a creator or something like that. Because they're focusing on God rather than on the human will and intellect and human spirit. Now, that's the optimistic answer. The uh, pessimistic answer, or maybe the realistic answer, is, well, this might happen for a season, but eventually, you go into the future, how many billions of years, the whole universe is going to run out of us usable energy and just going to go to a universal heat death. Just nothing will exist. Okay? Because the universe will just expend everything, and it's just going to be nothing. But that's a long ways away, so we don't need to worry about that in the near future. But ultimately... The end of everything is destruction, ironically, nothingness once again. Because the Big Bang started from nothing, and eventually this will wear out, and we'll go back to nothing. Isn't that interesting? Does that sound familiar? Okay. That's similar to destiny from another category. Uh, but that's way off, so we won't focus on that. We'll focus on trying to perfect this world that we're living in um, by human intellect. Right? Now, that's sort of the foundations of this worldview. Um, I want to come back and, and unpack the consequences of this and where this can go, but also where it has gone. I want us to think through some of the implications of this stuff. You go back in history, certain nations which had a, a influence from this biblical Christian worldview category in culture, in society. Okay? There's never been a perfect nation, right? which has done this well. But there have been some nations in the past which have embraced this more than other times, okay, and more than other, other nations have. Especially coming out of what we'll call the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago, there was this, this recapturing, this rediscovery 
of the understanding that the truth of God's word should be the foundation of everything in life. Okay? This should permeate how we think. And let's take a look at what the scriptures say and apply it to family. What does it say about how we should run our economy? What does it say about how we should, you know, run our worship? Okay? Political things and so on. This is being looked at as a guide. And in that perspective, if we're to map this out, the understanding was that when it comes to the sphere of influences that we talked about in YOM, God was sovereign over everything. And so the revelation of God, God's truth, tells us what family should look like and gives us definition and parameters for things such as family, sexual relationships, and so on. It tells us what our religion should look like, our worship, what is the church, and what is the community of believers. It gives us instructions for what that should be, what that should look like, what the role of the church is. It tells us instructions for education. Many people don't realize that, but it does. It speaks to this issue. Um, the whole realm of celebration and arts, interestingly, some people think the Bible doesn't speak that. It does. There's principles there that can be used in all that. A great book written by a guy named Francis Schaeffer called, called Art in the Bible. It's a short book. I recommend that he goes real good introduction to some biblical principles on what it means to apply biblical principles to the arts. Media, the flow of information. Are you going to tell the truth? Are you going to tell a lie? Economics. The Bible has a lot of instructions for how to run economies. Things like fair weights and measures and how to interact and, you know, how to deal with, you know, poverty and so on. And, of course, there's even instructions on um, principles that government leaders should take into consideration when they're governing a society, right? Now, once upon a time, many nations, especially talking about the Protestant Reformation, which happened in Europe, and that was exported to different places around the world. This is sort of the understanding that all of these spheres are good and valid, but they're all best understood under the revelation of God's truth. Now, what's been happening over time is little by little, we believers have been sort of allowing these other spheres to be shaped and dictated by the spirit of the age. So when we think of politics or government, do we start with a scripture? Or do we start with what our culture tells us that should look like? When it comes to economics, are we starting with biblical principles or are we starting with what the spirit of the age tells us how that should be done? When it comes to the media, you know, um, the celebration, I already told you that story about uh, that Lauren gives of the uh, movie studio president who wrote the letter and the seminary president who said, I'd rather send my students to hell than send them to Hollywood. Okay? As Christians did not get into that sphere of, in that sphere of influence, secular worldviews are quick to rush in there and begin to influence the culture through the realm of film and the arts. Education and so on. Now, it used to be that I would say, you know, for the by and large, with exceptions, we Christians have vacated most of these institutions except for these two over here, church and family. We still try to follow biblical principles when it comes to how we do church and Christian community. We're trying to look at Christian principles and family. We're letting the spirit of the age sort of give us a framework for everything else. I can't say that anymore, you guys. Maybe we're still trying to take it to church, but in the last few years I've seen a shift. We no longer let the Bible tell us what a family should look like. We are capitulating to the spirit of the age, which tells us a radically different definition of what a family is. So much so that from even say that might evoke anger in some of you. Where is that anger coming from? You guys, it's coming from the spirit of the age, which has got a root in our heart, in our mind on these things. Um, 
We can't expect to have an impact to society if we're playing by the enemy's rules. You hear what I'm saying? If we are allowing him to define for us what reality is. And then we're astonished that, you know, whatever it is, 30 million Christians, evangelical Christians in a nation like the United States are having such little influence. Why are we having such little influence? Well, maybe it's because we are not allowing the scriptures to permeate our thinking. Maybe the spirit of the age has way more influence than we realize. Yes, question. Uh, the question, um, to be influencers, uh, but not to let bad company corrupt good morals, um, there's, something going, there's, there's a contextual thing with that. Okay? That has to do with your, your people you're fellowshipping with, the people who are influencing you. It also says be in the world, but not of it. And so we can be in the world, we can be in these spheres, but being very intentional to not let those things influence us. Okay? Um, if my deep friendships are not in the Christian community, but it's only in people who are corrupt at their heart, that will influence me. Now, I do believe we need to make friends, but my deepest confidant should not be someone who does not have the same faith in Christ that I do because they will not give me the right advice or the right accountability. They can't. They might have some things, but it's only by default because maybe they've been influenced by this worldview, but it's not coming from their perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, very important, very relevant thing to take in consideration here. Now, as we move to a secular perspective, Okay, where God is not taken into consideration. Think about the vacuum that that leaves in this, in this picture. Um, there was a, once God disappears from this equation, take a look at these different spheres of society. Which one do you suppose will rise to the top and fill that void? I heard someone say it. Government. Why? Power. It has the most strength. It has the most power. It has the ability to impose on others. Okay. Media will have an influence, okay, um, but the government has the ability to actually control what the media is. Okay. It's got the, the ability to influence and to dictate what those things are. They will all have influence, but the one that will tend to take that place ultimately will be something like the state. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Some people re react to that and say, okay, therefore the government's bad. No. The government is an institution ordained by God himself. Okay. And so this might challenge some of us, but to say that uh, someone is a Christian anarchist is a contradiction. There is no such thing. Because as a Christian, if we're abiding the scriptures, the scriptures tell us that God has set up the governing authorities for a reason. And it is an institution which is valid. Okay. The problem is when that institution takes the place of God himself in our hearts and minds. Does that make sense? Okay. Any good thing put in the place of God becomes an idol. Okay. And that can be family, that can be church, that can be government, that can be whatever. But those things under the jurisdiction of God all find their proper place. Now, you guys picked that answer up pretty quick. Take a look at this fellow. His name is uh, Hegel. Um, he's writing a long time ago, um, philosopher. And here's what he says. When a society rejects God, it will increasingly look for someone else to save them. That savior often becomes the king. That Savior will become the king. Um, and so we come down to this situation where what naturally takes the place becomes some form okay, of the state where we, basically the state is taking the place of God. 
You guys, the spirit of the age right now, we are expecting this institution to take care of everything for us at almost every level. And most of the time without even questioning it. There have been societies which have done this in the recent past. And it has not turned out very well. We want to explore a little bit. Let me continue on what, what Hegel um, has said. Okay, or the state becomes absolute, and it becomes very big, and it becomes uh, all-consuming and begins to permeate and begin to dictate what happens in every other institution, every other sphere of influence. Hegel says this, the universal, which is his way of saying the thing that is absolute, the universal is to be found in the state. The state is a divine idea as it exists on earth. We must therefore worship the state as a manifestation of the divine on earth. And consider that if it's difficult to comprehend nature, it's harder to grasp the essence of the state. The state is the march of God through the world. He was saying this a long time ago. He was a brilliant guy. He was wrong, but he was brilliant in his assessment. If God's not in the picture, the state will rise up, and he thought that was, he thought that was a good thing. Something's got to take its place. Of course it will be the state. The state is going to take God's place. And what you have here is a word that, a world that becomes very much out of balance. Um, and this perspective, the influence of philosophers like Hegel and people like him begin to write about this. They'll begin to look at this like, that's reasonable. If God does not exist, this would be sort of my summary of a lot of, a lot of discussions. If this perspective, if God does not exist, then this whole column is irrelevant. Why do we keep borrowing from it? Because by and large, those societies, those nations, which are saying they're moving to a secular worldview, typically when it comes to morality, they keep smuggling in things from a Christian worldview. Most secular-minded people, they think it's wrong to rape. Why? Why? It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to murder. Why? If it benefits me as an individual, why are those things wrong? How about being... Telling the truth. Well, people value telling the truth. Where does it come from? They say God doesn't exist, and they smuggle it in through the back door, stealing from the biblical morality. Because that residue is still there. What was happening during this time, some people begin to say, why do we keep smuggling in Christian, biblically-based morality into our way of thought? Let's be consistent with this worldview and build from there and see what we come up with. Yes. Okay, excellent. That, and that's, that's, that's all over the place. It's okay to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm anybody. And here's a question. Where does that absolute come from as long as you don't hurt anybody? There is no basis for it in the system. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody is a moral absolute. Where do you get that from? There's no basis for it. Does that make sense? They have to be able to defend where does that absolute moral come from? Where does that value come from? And you can't get it. Um, they might say it works. Well, it's, it's, and sometimes people say it works to help society continue or to be civil. Okay. Well, what if it doesn't work? What if you've got this group of people over here, which are disrupting society? Then what might be good for the whole, for the community, is to squash that element of society. And it becomes justified. Um, but to say as long as it doesn't hurt anybody yet, there's no basis to come up with that. There's no foundation for it. Again, why not harm someone else? It really is a way of saying the golden rule. The golden rule comes from over here. You won't tell others you have them doing to you. You can't start from here and get that. 
But you're right, that is the most common response that people come up with. That's the basis on dictating it. Then why do so many people who believe that have such different opinions as to what morality is? Because it's not enough of a framework. Yeah. So this way of thinking, this perspective, um, led to people really thinking it through. And we have um, what I'll call the rise of the Marxist states. Okay, um, Different belief systems, people that took individuals um, such as Karl Marx himself, who took the ideas of Hegel and took the ideas of uh, other philosophers, I won't go into all those, begin a system, and Marx was trying to be absolutely consistent with some of Hegel's ideas, and Hegel also had this idea that if there is no God, okay, truth develops over time. Hegel said one of the problems that we've had with philosophers of the past is they keep trying to figure out what's wrong, and they keep thinking in terms of logic and contradictions. He said, what if the whole idea of logic and contradictions doesn't really fit reality? What if truth is evolving with us? What if truth develops and changes over time? It was a revolution in thinking. Basically, a really complicated, sophisticated way of saying that truth is relative towards an essential generation. So what's true for us right now is different than what was true for our grandparents. But that's okay because it develops and it morphs and changes according to the era that you live in. Marx took that idea and he combined it with his atheism and some of his political views and said basically, yeah, the whole history of the world is moving from one understanding of truth and reality to other. He defined everything in terms of politics and economics. If there is no God, of course, something's going to take its place. It's got to be the state. What should be the nature of the state? And he spent a lot of time thinking about what is the nature of government and so on. And he had a whole explanation of... Uh, of the progression of history, how it goes from simple communities who, you know, just think tribal primitive peoples, then that develops to a higher system. Actually, he kind of diagrams it this. you got this basic communalism. You don't need to write this down. This is too much to go into in detail here. But eventually, these basic communities, tribal communities, come in conflict with each other. And he said, every time you have a conflict, either of ideas or of civilizations and people groups, out of that clash, and oftentimes it's a violent clash, comes a whole new paradigm, a whole new way of seeing life, a whole new way of doing society. And that's a good thing. Um, that develops into what's called feudalism. When you think feudalism, think the lord, the king in a castle with the peasants working the fields around him. Okay? Eventually, this feudal lord will come in a conflict, this feudal lord, and out of that emerges a whole other system, which he called capitalism, where the market, money, finances, businesses really have the most influence. So that may have been good for a time, but then those capitalists, those business types, those, those who are controlling the finances are being very harsh to the poor people. Eventually, those poor people rise up, and there will be a clash, a violent clash. And out of that clash will emerge a new system, which he called socialism, where there is no rich, there is no poor, everything is equal with everybody. And society becomes absolute, okay? With capitalism, money is absolute. And he was correct. That's not necessarily a good thing because money should not be God. Okay? We move away from that to socialism where society basically is absolute. It's the most important thing. Okay? And to make that work, you've got to give a lot of authority to the state to make sure that everything's equalized among all the peoples. So private ownership becomes a bad thing. If someone owns something, that means someone else doesn't have it. That's not fair. So the government should be used in place equalize everything so everyone has enough to get by. It sounds so good in theory. It sounds so good in theory. And as long as you believe that the people who are controlling the system are basically good and there's no evil intention in their heart, it might work. But what does the Bible tell us about the nature of mankind? We're fallen. 
And so when you give too much power to fallen people, they will corrupt it. That makes sense? But he said, in the scheme, eventually, what needs to happen is every nation in the world needs to move from a free market system to a social system where the state controls everything so that they can make everything equal and take care of everybody. This will eventually give way to what he called international socialism, where every nation in the world is a socialist nation. It's a socialist perspective. Once that happens, once every country in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in North America, and so on, is coming under the system, then the governments of all those nations will merge into one big government, take a little bit of time, smooth it, then the government will step back and there will be no government because we will have perfected society. And everybody on earth will work for the benefit of his fellow, fellow people. And they'll work, they'll produce, and if someone's lacking, they'll give all the generous of the heart and it will be this global utopia, this wonderful paradise on earth which is made by man. On the way to get there, before we get to that final role and that final system where it all ends, he said, this is what communism really is, when the whole world is one big global community living in harmony and peace. It sounds so good. But each of these steps is going to be violent, and it's going to be difficult because it has to do with conflict. And out of the conflict comes good things. Change will always lead to something that is good. Um, Now, some of the people such as uh, a guy named Lenin took these things, took these ideas that Marx was saying here. I know this is getting really complicated. I just want to get to the point of where the consequences these ideas led to. He said, you know, Marx was right, but he was wrong on one level. Marx said, this will happen naturally over time. Let's just let it happen. And there was a discussion among people who were following Marx's teachings. Some said, let's just let it happen. And let's change the nations of the world slowly by just changing laws, voting, influencing the spheres. Let's get an education yards and change the way people think. Other folks said, no, let's force the issue. Let's make it happen by the point of the gun. Those people can be known as communists, the ones who are going to do it violently. The other ones said, no, that's, that's too bloody. We're not into that. We don't want to force violence and bloodshed. Now, why did they not want to go down the path of violence and bloodshed? It's because although they were embracing the system, they still had morality coming from when they went to Sunday school. That value for human life was still there in residue form in their thinking. That makes sense? Like, no, we don't want to create conflict and revolution. Let's just try to change it naturally by the ballot box, by changing laws and so on. So there's a difference of opinion, but the goal was the same. This group wants to force the issue. This group wants to do it slowly, but they're both going to the same goal, global utopia. And this marks much of what was going on throughout the 20th century with different governments, different ways of, of thinking. Um, but this idea that both groups had, whether you're talking about you know, the communists of the Soviet Union and so on, or um, maybe you know, people with a different type of uh, you know, socialist mindset in other nations, the idea is the state needs to become all-encompassing. That sounds good unless you're a parent. What is she saying? My kids don't belong to... They belong to all of you. Not that long ago, something like that would have not gone over very well. You hear what I'm saying? The spirit of the age, the culture is changing. We're more and more comfortable with, well, it's up to someone else. It's up to the community. It's up to some other group but to take care of my kids. It's not my responsibility. You don't have time to unpack the implications of that. But here's where I want to kind of get to. Some of these experiments in how to go about this way of thinking, of trying to implement this worldview 
at all levels. Um, a guy named Voltaire, a long time ago, a French philosopher, very secular-minded guys. He said, those who make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And I want to take a look at just a brief survey, historically, things that happened in my grandfather's lifetime, of what people living consistently with the ideas of this category, what they brought to our planet. Um, that whole system I talked about earlier with, uh, you know, with, with sort of the march of, of communism. As this system began to take over one country after another, to establish that system meant you had to get rid of people who had counter ideas. But that's okay if people are nothing more than just basically DNA plus tissue. Right? Like you get rid of a cockroach, you get rid of a person. Same way. Because they're inhibiting progress. And so in many of these nations, led to incredible bloodbaths and incredible carnage and incredible loss of life. Now, oftentimes when people think about, you know, some of the most evil things that have happened in history, most of us, we might quickly default to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And he's sort of the, the face of evil. There's nothing wrong with that because he was evil. Does that make sense? What I think is astonishing, what's often overlooked, there was a whole other ideology happening at the same time which killed far more people than the Nazis did. But it's not considered as evil. It just kind of gets ignored. It gets overlooked. The things that were happening in the Soviet Union and other communist countries, the death toll far exceeds what happened to concentration camps. And yet we don't hear about it very often. I think that's fascinating. Now, it's not like it's hidden. But it's not, doesn't seem to be as readily apparent in the minds of most people when they think of the history of the last, you know, 80, 100 years. Um, now, just want to pick, zero in on one of these nations. Um, as communism began to, to spread, it go in one country after another throughout the 20th century, especially after World War II, as it began to just gain more and more influence. Um, there was one nation that was coming under this influence when I, was, uh, when, I was in, uh, when I was in school, elementary, coming into junior high, and so on. And that was the nation of Cambodia. And uh, this fellow here, his name is Pol Pot, he decided that he wanted to use his nation as a test case because the population was small of how quickly we could affect this sort of utopian paradise run by the state and just making everything equal. But he understood that to do that, you must eliminate people who have ideas which go against this whole system. And so he began to uh, round up anybody who was suspected of having ideas which ran counter to his worldview were rounded up and sent you know, to, be, to be worked to death or to be, or to be killed. Um, the idea was to purify the nation and to eliminate those people so that the country could move forward. He wanted purity of thought and purity of, of humanity. So anyone with an education, professionals, doctors, lawyers, teachers, um, anyone who spoke languages other than the two languages of that country were suspected of having ideas because they had education. And so the educated ones were rounded up and were systematically eliminated. Um, and some of you may have been there. I don't know if anyone on the staff has been there, but you can go there today and see the literal evidence of this carnage that happened in the 1970s. It might seem like a long time ago. It really wasn't that long ago. Um, now what happened here, what came to be known as the killing fields of Cambodia, was just being completely consistent with the thought that people are not persons, they're carriers of ideas. And if the idea is counterproductive, you eliminate the idea. But the way to eliminate the idea is you eliminate the person carrying the idea. 
And so horrible things are justified in the name of progress. Because we all want to get to utopia at some point. If you want to get, bad, get rid of bad ideas, get rid of the people carrying those ideas. Okay? Even wearing eyeglasses could get you arrested. Because what would you need eyeglasses for unless you're reading? And we don't know what you've been reading, so we better arrest you and find out. Um, and so this, uh, this carnage, this, this, uh, this horrible thing that happened in this nation, let me just zero in on one place. This was a security prison. It was a school that was turned into a prison, prison number 21. And in this prison, people were brought there. They were being processed. People were seen as enemies of the state, enemies of the state. Um, their processor, as they came, they took photos of them, kind of like mugshots at a police department. And so historically today, we have photos of many of the people that came into this place. And just to take this out of the realm of abstraction, the realm of theory or ideas, I want us to personalize this, to humanize this a little bit. What I want to do is I want to show you some of the photos that the authorities of this prison took of the people as they came in for processing. Just to put a human face to what we're talking about here. And as I do this, I want to understand that the photos of these people Best guess is they were all killed. They all died here. Okay. So let's just kind of go through this and take a look at some of these photos. I do want to pause and say just try to consider how old you think she is. Not very old. But somehow it's been determined that she was an enemy and a threat to the state because she had ideas or her parents had ideas that were not consistent with the system. Okay. They were not consistent with this worldview. Same with old men. How many photos of individual people we looked at? 155 in two minutes. If I wanted to show you photos of everyone who died in Cambodia in this path to man-made paradise, if we kept going at that pace, 155 people every two minutes, we would be here for 21 days without taking a break, just looking at photos at that pace. That's how long it would take to look at all the faces of people who died there in that nation in a pretty short period of time. Over 17,000 people died in this prison. There's only 15 known survivors of it. It's hard to comprehend that. Now, going back a little bit earlier in history, um, when the first nation to sort of embrace this and go there was the former Soviet Union. Um, the second leader of that nation was a guy named Joseph Stalin. And here's what he said. It's very interesting. He was very much aware of the worldview battle that we're in. And I think he saw it clearly than most people do. He said, ideas are more powerful than guns. He's right. The most powerful thing is not weapons and nuclear bombs, it's ideas. And so they're very intentional in how do we broadcast our ideas globally? How do we influence people to think like us? And here's what he goes on to say. We would not let our enemies have guns, so why should we let them have ideas? So let's influence the way they think because we understood that ultimately the battle is one of worldviews. I want you to think about any conflict you've heard of in the news, whether it's a conflict going on right now with ISIS, conflicts in the Middle East, um, wars that have happened in the past, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam War or the Korean War or the World War II, whatever. Have you ever thought about it this way? Every single one of those physical wars was actually a manifestation of the worldview battle that was going on before it. It just eventually gets to the point where people are taking up arms. Why do they take up arms? Because of the ideas that people are holding. Ultimately, physical warfare is a manifestation of what's going on in the realm of ideas, that spiritual war. He also said this. He's attributed to saying this phrase. A single death is a tragedy 
a million deaths is a statistic. And here is what he meant by that. Because people would say, how do you think you can get away with just this wholesale slaughter of people? It's like, well, if there's never a face put to it, it's just a number on a page. If an individual story gets highlighted, people feel gripped in their emotions. And it's humanized. But if they just see numbers, 10,000 were killed here, 2 million are killed here, it's just kind of overwhelming. It's like, oh, it's, it's not personal. It just doesn't affect us in the heart. Interesting thing. Um, one of the quotes uh, by Adolf Hitler is he says, I use emotion for the many and only use reason for the few. He tried to communicate influence for most people on the realm of the emotion, emotional basis. Okay. Didn't want people thinking too much. But with that said, a million deaths is a, you know, is a statistic. Okay? A single death is a tragedy. I want us to take a look at just a few statistics before we're done here about the cost of this move towards a man-made paradise. Okay? I just want to give you some numbers real quickly here. Because as this system began to take over, as this, basically the state was put in the place of God and nation after nation, here are the numbers of people who were uh, murdered in these nations for that cause. And again, all this, the whole point is to get to something good. But on the way there, it's going to be really rough. In this nation, Nicaragua, okay, 5,000 people were killed there. This is going on while I was in high school. Hungary. 27,000. East Germany. So this is after World War II. Okay, when the war is over, but Germany split to west and east. 70,000 people. Now, by the way, these aren't soldiers fighting in the battlefield. These are people being rounded up. Now, to understand even these numbers, that's hard to understand these numbers. Let me show you what this, this is around, what, just uh, around 100,000 people. Let me show you what that looks like visually. This is a picture of a stadium, the big house in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There's uh, the stadium holds just over 100,000 people, and they estimate you can actually see 115,000 people in this photo, but the stadium itself holds just over 100,000. That's what 100,000 people looks like, all clumped together. That's what we just showed you, those first few nations. Look at that, 73,000, 94,000. 100,000 people, another 100,000. I just added 370,000 statistics to the list here. Now, here's what that looks like visually. That's equivalent to filling up that stadium once again, and everyone there is slaughtered. You get the trucks, you clean out the corpses, fill it up again, do the same thing, fill it up again, do the same thing. That's what I just added to the list. That's hard to comprehend now, isn't it? One hundred twenty-five thousand, one hundred ninety-seven thousand, two hundred thousand people. Look at this one. Almost half a million. Four hundred thirty-five thousand people in that country. Ethiopia. Many of this was by uh, a famine. An induced government-induced famine. And so many of these people died, just died of starvation. 1,072,000. Look at that, million and a half. Poland.
1,670,000 in that nation. This one's tough because uh, this was happening when the uh, Soviets invaded Afghanistan. I found a lot of different statistics. Some people said it was a million and a half. Some people said it was as little as 428,000, as if little and 428,000 should be in the same sentence. Um, this is tough. Uh, this nation. Again, difficult because a lot of people died. Almost too many people died in a famine. And some people say the famine was, was man-made. Other people aren't sure. So that's why the statistics, some is you know, a million and a half. Others say three and a half million. Either way, a lot of people. And by the way, it's still happening here. One of the things the world said after World War II in regards to what the Nazis had done is never forget, never again. It's happening right now in North Korea. With very little being said about it. There is people saying things about it, but not as much as there should be, including people in the gray straight pajamas in concentration camps. It's happening right now. The pictures I showed you earlier, Cambodia, 2,397,000. Take a look at this big jump here. Former Soviet Union, 61,911,000. Some people say it's higher than that. Um, these statistics I'm giving you, I should probably give you a credit where I'm getting this from. It's a guy named R.J. Rummel. He's a professor at the University of Hawaii. Okay. And he compiled these books and some of his research. He wrote one book called, um, oh my goodness, what was it called? I think it was just called Democide, something like that. Um, but you can look him up. He's got a lot of statistics on the Internet. And uh, yeah, astonishing. I got one more to put on here, though. Okay, take a look at this one. 76 million. Um, can we even comprehend these numbers? We can't. Now, remember what I said at the beginning of the week ideas have consequences. These numbers are the consequences of the simple idea that God does not exist and mankind is the center of all things. That's what led to this. And it's a logical, consistent consequence of that idea. People are living consistently with what they say they believe. We're looking at close to 150 million people were slaughtered just in the 20th century in the name of this path to utopia. Again, most of this, if not all of it, well, most of it happened during my grandfather's lifetime. One lifetime. More people slaughtered in the name of this worldview than all people who've died in all wars since the time of Christ up until now put together. I bet for many of us, this is the first time we've heard this. We must learn. From, you know, we don't have to be theoretical about what these ideas can lead. We can look in the recent past and see where these ideas have led. I know this is heavy. It's supposed to be because we need to feel the impact of the battle of ideas that God's calling us to. We need to take a, I think, a thorough examination and evaluation of what is going on. You guys, what you're doing here and coming to this DTS, preparing to make a difference in the world, don't think of it as just, a, oh, I'm going to do this for six months and get back on with life. There may be only a handful that, of you that God calls back to this type of thing, but wherever you go, please understand, you need to be part of addressing this battle of ideas. If you're going to school, if you're going into a career, starting a family, 
You need to bring the authority of God's word into all of those spheres of life. Because think about this. The people of God are the only ones who have the truth, and beyond just having the truth, we've got the Holy Spirit of God to empower the application of the truth. If we don't make a difference in our generation, there's no other belief system or no other group of people out there who can. Does that make sense? That kind of puts a big responsibility on our shoulders, doesn't it? And think back to the Great Commission. Make disciples of the nations. To make a disciple means you need to teach them. You need to prepare them the truth of God's word. Now, in the midst of all this, um, coming out of going back to the Soviet Union here, a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, let me show you his picture. He died a few years ago. Quick story in the sky. He grew up believing in this whole system that we just talked about. Okay? He was a thoroughgoing embracer of that whole ideology. But he'd said something because he was a great writer, brilliant writer, gifted writer. Some of you guys may have even read some of his books in literature class because they're still seen as classics. But he said something negative about the leader. And so he was thrown into a gulag, the equivalent of a, of a concentration camp but still believed in the system even though he was under the consequences and suffering under the system. There was a doctor. He got really, really sick. He thought he was going to die. There was a doctor in this camp who was attending to him. This doctor took a look at Solzhenitsyn and figured he might die. I better take a risk. This doctor was a Christian and shared his faith with Solzhenitsyn. As he was sharing his faith, witnessing to him, Solzhenitsyn passed out from whatever physical ailment he was under. He woke up the next morning. He was thinking about everything this doctor told him. He said, man, you know, just begin to process it. He asked the nurse, hey, I'd like to talk to that doctor again. Could you please bring him for me? I, I want to finish your conversation. And the nurse said, well, didn't you hear? He was murdered last night in his sleep. He took a risk. He paid the price, but he shared the gospel with this man. This man ended up giving his life to the Lord and reevaluated everything that he had been taught on the basis of the Bible. Thoroughly embraced everything he could about what the scriptures are taking. Reevaluated everything. Eventually, an amazing story ended up coming out of the Soviet Union and explaining and contrasting the evils of the system with truth. Many people heard it. Many people rejected him and mocked him. But he was someone, one person who did so much to expose the lies of the enemy. Now, here's something he said. He says, you know, when I was a little boy... I used to hear my parents and their generation talking about all the bad things that were happening to us here in Russia. And he said they always came back to the same conclusion. The reason why these bad things are happening is because men have forgotten God. That's why these bad things have happened. He says, then I've grown up. I've lived through all this, this scourge of hypnotic nation. And he's kind of like the world's leading expert on it. He wrote thousands of pages, read tens of thousands of pages, wrote thousands of pages himself about the history of that nation. He said, after doing all that research and processing what happened, it's interesting. I come back to the same conclusion. What caused all of this was men had forgotten God. That's why all this had happened. He traces the whole thing as complicated as back to the simple idea. People have forgotten God. Now, I'm not saying prophetically that we're going to go back to something like this. And I'm not here to say that. What I am saying is while these things are happening, people kept thinking it can't be, it can't be, it can't be that bad. But if people were looking deep enough at the ideas, there's no reason why it shouldn't have gone that way. There's no reason why it can't in the future. Does that make sense? It's happened before. And sadly, so oftentimes, 
when people were in a place of influence to speak out, so oftentimes out of fear they did not do so. Um, I think I mentioned before, I'm going through a book right now, a biography about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And kind of just reading about his struggles. He was a pastor in Germany when the Nazis began to take over and began to deceive so many. One of the sad parts about this tale, one of the things that was so grievous to him was how many Christians were just sort of giving into the spirit of the age and going along with it. But there was a big core group of pastors that came together and said, we will not do this. And they signed their name to something. And for that, many of them were arrested. But they did not give and they did not compromise. And that stood as a shining light through this whole mess. And they inspired many other people to resist, not to give in to the system. And uh, it's, it's tough to you know, even think of the implications and the, and the ripple effects of what these righteous men and women did when they resisted this whole thing. We must be that in our generation. But the only answer, and some Christians make the mistake of thinking the answer is a different political system or a different form of economics, something like that. No, the only answer comes back to what we're going to be spending tomorrow morning talking about. It's Jesus Christ and what he did in the cross. That is the only answer. One story, and then we'll let us, um, we need to finish here. Let me show you a photo of a fellow. This guy's name is Comrade Duke. Um, and uh, I wish I had more time to let the heaviness of those statistics sink in. Because I want you guys to be haunted by those statistics. Not to ruin your day, but to be in touch with the reality of the battle of ideas that we're in. But coming this fellow, this guy, his job was to run that security prison in Cambodia that I was telling you about earlier, with all those pictures. He ran that. Okay, this, was his, this was his job. Um, after things settled down in Cambodia, he went into hiding. He was captured in 1999. They discovered him. Okay. Now, oh, this is Karma Duke. This is a guy who ran that prison, put him in jail. He was waiting for about 10 years in 2009, so not that long ago. He went on trial for war crimes to account for having killed those 17,000 people, been responsible for all of that. Okay. And during the trial, he admitted to torturing those inmates and to being a part of this process to eliminate them, to murder them. And uh, at some point in the trial, people, witnesses are coming forward. Witnesses would come forward and say things like, I saw Comrade Duke do this. I saw him do that. What's your response, Comrade? And he'd say, they're lying. So you deny that you did these things? No, I don't deny it. Why do you say they're lying? Well, if they're here in this room, they weren't there. Because if they were there, they wouldn't be here because they killed everybody. They can't be witnesses. We, no one survived. But yes, I did these things. So you admit it? Yes. And he said this. He said, I've done very bad things in my life. Now is the time to bear the consequences of my actions. I thought that God was very bad. I did not serve God. I served communism. I feel very sorry about the killings. We killed them like chickens. I guess I'll go to jail now, but that's okay. The killings must be understood. The truth must be made known. And as people begin to explore what's going on with this guy, here's what's fascinating. Three years before he was captured, before he was discovered, he was kind of hiding out. He came across some uh, relief and development workers doing some good things for the poor, met them, and became a Christian. was redeemed. This man, who some may have called the monster, had his life turned around when he met Jesus. He's a brother in the Lord now, the man who did this stuff, and we will see him in heaven. That is the power of the cross. 
to take someone who did something like that and transform their life. Um, people that many of us would have seen, someone, is it possible for someone that evil to turn around? Yes, it absolutely is because it's been done. Don't forsake the power of intercession. He was sentenced um, on 2012, not that long ago, to I think 35 years in prison. Right? Um, we are the only ones who have this hope. Are we abiding in the word, in the truth of the word? And if we don't feel the hunger, I'm going to invite you to pray for a hunger for God's word, to be desperate for it. And to be desperate for the leading of his Holy Spirit to show you what your path should be in this generation. Because you guys, these lies are going deeper and deeper and deeper in society after society. And ideas have consequences. You hear what I'm saying? We are living, it's not to scare you, I want to wake us up. We are living in an urgent period of history. Lord, I thank you for your truth. And Lord, even as we've taken a look at this darkness, I pray we'd feel it as much as we're supposed to, but not to the point of despair. Lord, protect us from despair, but also protect us from burying our heads in the sand, like so many of our fellow brothers and sisters have done in the past. They pretend these things weren't happening. Lord, we want to feel the weight of it without feeling the despair of it. I pray that by looking this evil in the face, we would be motivated to cling to you and to take everything to the cross and to submit anything, our whole lives, to give up every right that we think we have and to lay it at your feet. Now we would say, like the prophets of the Old Testament, Lord, here I am, send me, Lord. May that be our cry. And give us the grace and the courage to walk it out, even when it's not fun anymore, and even when we're not feeling it anymore. Lord, give us that foundation in you and in your word that gives us longevity. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, just so hit with uh, just the darkness of this world, you know? And um, it really is a great darkness. There's an even greater light. Um, but we just we just can't afford to lose this, you know. And 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 I just think you know you, and as you go through this DTS, you know, let this be kind of your compass, let this be kind of your GPS, you know. If you get this, you're good. If we get this, we can go far, you know. And we're not fighting for victory; we're fighting from it, you know. And so just remember that as you're processing with the Lord and, and, you know, be overwhelmed with the reality of the darkness, but don't be overcome because there's an even greater light. You know, there's an even greater hope. The gospel is good news. You know, this is amazing news that I'm made in the image of God, that you're made in, in his image. And, you know, I, I, I think I, I quoted Isaiah or Isaiah six or nine seven actually is over there it says um, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this you know so we can find comfort in that that the Lord is winning this war 
we're on his team. We're on the winning side, you know. Um, the gospel is good news. So, yeah, really take some time before the Lord to, to just pray through this. You know, like what, what Tom was saying is if you don't have a hunger for the word, then really ask him for it. Asking you shall receive, seeking you will find, knock, and the door will be opened. Um, so, we can do this. We're on the winning team. Brighter days are ahead. Brighter days are ahead. Um, yeah, okay. We're going to go for uh, lunch and then meet in the prayer room at 1. Thank you, Danny, for the music. <laughs> oh, it's so dramatic. <laughs> We're going to go to the prayer room. <laughs> uh, yeah, see you at one. And uh, again, Tom, thank you so much for just being blunt and telling us the truth and shining light into our lives. It's awesome. Yeah. And then if you.